graphic ones that comes to mind is when you have this parable that Jesus is telling, a story, and he said, as much as you've done it to the least of these, you've done this to me. And I, I remember when I had a friend of mine who was adopting a, a child from Uzbekistan, and he had in his mind uh, an imagination that he, coming from the medical field, he thought, you know, all we've got to do is get this girl the right kind of care that she needs. And so, you know, they, they brought her, and it was a miracle. How, and this, it was, this, was, this was such a significant connection through, through a friendship that we had and mutual friends that I still know them. They lived in Uzbekistan for a number of years. They had somehow found connection with a state-run orphanage. And this is just a little bit of the backdrop. Sorry, I didn't mean to go into all this. But the, the backdrop is that the orphanages run by, in Uzbekistan, would take care of disabled children until they were about 18 years old, and then they would basically starve them to death. And so that was the mindset. And they were still living in that uh, very real reality. So they would begin on one floor, and they would slowly progress to the third floor, and they would never leave the building. Um, and this little girl was on the second floor, and miraculously, a lot, they, they allowed her to be adopted. But he shared how he went through this hope, and then hope that was dis... Uh, what's the right word? Uh, hope that was held from them? What's the, I, I, there's a, I'm sure there's a right proper word. Uh, that, that they didn't, weren't able to get a hold because he finally got to the point where, where modern medicine wasn't going to be able to help this girl. She is going to be disabled the rest of her life. And he's going through this wrestle as he's uh, holding this girl. And then he had a powerful revelation. He said, Jesus, I'm holding you. And so as I think about the, those walking in places, you know, I, Forget all, of the, forget all of our ideas of trying to figure out how to judge all this, right? You know, they're, they're, they're the ones in, they're the ones out. Jesus said, when you do this to the least, that's me. That's powerful. The poor, the needy, the, those who lament. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn and lament. So I just want to join my, you know, I pray through the Beatitudes almost every day. I was like, Lord, I want to join the lament this morning of those who are crying out because you're there, and I believe that. So, Lord, we pray, as we often do, for your kingdom to come. Um, Lord, I'm thinking about this that's occurring in the other part of the world. I'm thinking about places, even places in ministry that have, that are reaching to those, and there's just things that are occurring around us, Lord. Children who are struck with illness, who are told they have no hope of growing into adulthood. Lord, there's, there's injustices that stand in front of us, and you said as we lament, as we reach, and as we care for the poor, there you are. So, Lord, continue to teach us your economy. We want to agree with your economy. Lord, we're surrounded by another one that just pounds at us day and night. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, if you would like to follow along this morning, I'm going to be sharing 
from two different texts. Um, they're both from the lectionary passages that are uh, for this morning, one out of Matthew 18, and I'm taking a minute because my Bible isn't moving that fast. I'm using, I'm using a new version, which I highly encourage, by the way, the use of using new versions every now and then just to open up our hearts because we can become so familiar. Matthew 18, and, and then the epistle, which is out of the book of Romans uh, uh, today. So, Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to ask Jesus, who's considered to be the greatest in heaven's kingdom realm? Romans 13, beginning at verse 8. Don't owe anything to anyone except your outstanding debt to continually love one another. For the one who learns to love has fulfilled every requirement of the law. This is from the Passion Translation. Forgive me for not telling you that. Uh, for the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet. And every other commandment can be summed up in these words. Love and value others the same way you love and value yourself. Love makes it possible to harm Excuse me, love makes it impossible to harm another. So love fulfills all that the law requires. As I was preparing for the, the message this week, I came across a, a prayer of St. Francis. It's, uh, I, I typically pray the... the uh, uh, the, the, the prayer, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. But this is another one of his prayers. It says, I beg you, Lord, let the fiery, gentle power of your love take possession of my soul and snatch it away from anything under heaven that I might die for love, for, the, for love of your love as you saw fit to die for love of mine. I want to talk to us this morning about this very issue. Sometimes I use the word economics of the kingdom. The way of Christ finding heaven on earth. Um, I've, I think I've shared this illustration before, but it's really fitting today, so I'm just going to use it again. But um, it was a classic movie. First came out in 1984. Uh, it's called Karate Kid. Sure, many of us remember this. You know, the original movie tells the story of a young boy who, after being bullied and beat up by his classmates in this high school that he had just come into and trying to find his way, um, he's being beat up by these that were trained in, in karate. And so he reaches out to a, a man that he thought initially was just this old eccentric building maintenance man. Mr. Miyagi. And what he discovered about Mr. Miyagi was that he was a skilled master at karate. So naturally, he put two and two together. He pursued him because he thought, I have a need. I've got to stand up to these bullies, and you can help me do that. So his best imagination was that the old man could teach him something he didn't know, give him some 
some, the, the right skill set, the right motions to help him fix his problem. So the story unfolds, and, and anyone who's ever seen this movie or heard it referenced, well, these are some of the phrases that have stuck through the years, right? Paint the fence. Sand the deck. Wax the car. And for days, you know, Mr. Miyagi has him doing these chores until finally, uh, you know, Daniel LaRusso's had enough. And then in a dramatic display, Mr. Miyagi reveals to Daniel that these seemingly, you know, chores that he was doing were, were teaching him something in his muscle memory about how to respond properly to attacks that would come at him. Now, of course, Daniel not only discovers how much he has to learn, but then he comes to know this man. And, and the, the, the good part of the story of that movie is that he goes into this journey of learning how that Mr. Miyagi actually lives, not just the things that he does. And so he's no longer preoccupied with learning how to fix his problem, but getting to know him. And, and, and more than just the motions of karate, he's helping Daniel learn about the motivations that inhabit him. And so much about that movie, I, and the reason I reference it, because it's a really, really important thing. It, it's, first of all, it speaks to how often we first come to God and how many times that, the, the things that bring us back to God. Not unlike the disciples, we're looking for something of a fix. The disciples have in their mind the idea of a kingdom with a Messiah that is going to fix their current problem, which is they have a ruler over them that is oppressing them. So they're looking for a Messiah that's been talked about all of their life, who could, you know, their, their biggest imagination of a fix of a problem was their enemy would be removed. And, and, and their best imagination for that went back about 150 years before them during the Maccabean Revolt. There was this revolt against Rome that removed Rome from their midst. And, and it's as if God blessed their revolt. And so, watch this. Their imagination was that they needed... They needed God to come and bring a Messiah by the means of sacred force, sacred violence that could defeat their enemies. Now, I wonder how many of our prayer meetings, how many calls to prayer I've been a part of, have found their motivations very similar. I remember how big the prayer meetings were after 9-11. We're almost there. I led those meetings. Capacity buildings. We perceived an enemy. Something needs to be fixed. Now, lest anyone hear what I am not saying, most of us come to God because of the bullies that have left us wounded. And alone. And the longer that we walk with Jesus, here's what I'm learning, is that Jesus says, Ben, 
Yeah. Come do life with me. Sand the floor. Paint the fence. And it feels so disconnected. We need to get rid of this problem, Jesus. Forgive your enemy. But Jesus, do you see what they're doing? <laughs> Paint the fence. Forgive your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. See, we, we turn to God because we're trying to get him on our side when God's intent is to invite us into a way of inhabiting life and living that isn't just going through motions, but that's motivated by the way of the cross. Cross-shaped living, which is inhabiting self emptying love and forgiveness actually in my life. Beloved, the good news that we proclaim prayerfully, regularly, and often, but the primary practice of the Christian life, listen to this, is not duty and obligation, the very essence of the kingdom of God where we experience what it means to be most fully alive is to live in and from and because of love. End of sentence. The epistle that we read from today, Romans 13, comes from, uh, Paul begins in chapter 12 by saying, I urge you therefore to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now we looked at this last week when Jesus turns to his friends and he says, um, hey, by the way, I'm about to, to die. And Peter said, oh, no, no, I don't think so. And he said, hey, you, your mind, you're thinking like a man. Your imagination is, is in the wrong place. Take up your cross. And see, I, I've heard the teaching on this so many times. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And, and I've often heard it, and it all, this is sort of the paraphrase, it almost gets spoken of as if we're called to try harder and do a little more. And yet Paul says this in Romans 13, verse 9, let love, love be without hypocrisy. The way of Christ, the way of the cross, can only be understood in, from, and because of love. Now, by the way, I forgot to mention this here in the middle of the message, but my wife is visiting our grandbabies <laughs> in Florida. But uh, we, we were having, she, I, I had said something to her, and she said, are you saying something? I said, absolutely not. I'm, the only reason I'm doing this is in and be, from and because of love. She said, are you getting ready for a sermon? I said, I mean what I said, but yes, I am intending on using that phrase. One of the biggest challenges... For those of us who have grown up with religious sort of backgrounds, for most of us in the room, that means we've, you know, some churchy background, has included a history as a nation and as individuals that, of attempting to resist and stand against obvious evil and wrong Well, we, we, we want to do that. We, we should, after all. I, I think of these phrases I've heard. The only way that, you know, 
evil continues to increase as if good men do nothing. So here's the, our struggle is we wind up many times right where the disciples were in Matthew 18. Jesus, you keep talking about a kingdom, so who's going to be the greatest? Because the greatest ones are the ones who stand up and remove the enemy by means of power and force, by means of, dare we say it, sacred violence. And by the way, we have that history, don't we? Things like manifest destiny, distorted, messed up thinking, because God's on our side. And it's all at the cost of love. And so Jesus is speaking to his friends in Matthew 18. Who's the greatest? And so I was thinking about this, the words of Jesus, as he's responding to his friends. Who's the greatest? Um, and have you ever pondered, and so just meditating on that, on that chapter in Matthew 18, have you ever pondered um, the different questions that his disciples asked and that didn't seem to make sense? Um, let me think here. Which one's going to sit on the right and the left? Who's the greatest? Um, Thomas. Lord, we don't know where you're going. He just said where he's going. Show us the way. Um, and, and so sometimes they, they just, they, they don't seem like they make sense. And remember, here's one of the most classic ones that most of us will recall and we've heard quoted many times. We refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas, right? <clears throat> So I'm thinking about the disciples, because here's what I'm trying to submit to us, is that all through their, their journey with him, even to the very end, right before his ascension, they're still saying, Lord, are you at this time going to establish the kingdom? News bulletin, guys, I've already established it. They still didn't see it, There's, because their imagination is force, strength, that's about removing pushing back. Now, I, I was thinking about this, doing a little bit of reading about it, and, and uh, I think it's Gerard, uh, oh, it'll come to me, uh, he's, a, he's a French philosopher, um, his first name will come back to me in a little while, but he, he, he was commenting on Thomas, and he says, you know, we, we refer to him as doubting Thomas, but what was it that he was doubting? Now, often we're saying, okay, Thomas, he's the guy who said, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. Have you ever considered that it wasn't just that Jesus was raised from the dead? Just a few weeks before that, he had seen Jesus along with all the other disciples. They saw him feed thousands. They'd seen him raise other people from the dead. In fact, they saw Jesus raise Lazarus who'd been dead for three days. He was there. So was it that he didn't believe that Jesus could accomplish that? What's he doubting? I think possibly far greater is the idea what he's doubting is a Messiah 
who would carry wounds of crucifixion and be the leader of a kingdom. That looks weak. I'm looking for the guy, the great one. How does good beat evil like that? You have to take a stand. I'm watching this in living color yesterday, and I was like, oh, my word, are you serious with me? I'm watching somebody being interviewed, and I'll just make this, I'll go this far as to say they were at a political rally and being asked questions, and this individual said, it isn't about truth, it's about good versus evil. And I'm like, are you, oh, no, Lord, we're, we're, we're right in the same place. Where we have an imagination that somehow living for good means that we're rising up with some sort of force against our perceived enemies. By the way, he said, never mind the facts. Thomas's best imagination for Israel's kingdom. Ah, I heard about this. Judas Maccabees rose up, had a big old army, and we got these guys out of here with violent force, but it was sacred. And we removed the oppressors. And by the way, Thomas isn't alone in that thought process. A good Jew of his time and his day believed in the idea of grace, but grace was proven by works, not just not just. The, you know, personal purity and adherence to the law, their idea of grace proven by works was zeal, separatism, and resistance of enemies. There were guys like the daggermen, the zealots, who would go around and kill Romans secretly. They were resisting their oppressors. The Messiah, however, would be like them and set them free. So they judged themselves by their amount of zeal. Lord, who's going to be the greatest? John 10, the Jews come to Jesus and say, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah or not? That blows my mind. He's fed thousands. He's cast out spirits. They're dead folks. They've been raised from the dead, and they're still, what? Because they're still looking for, do you see what I'm saying? getting at? They're so sure that the kingdom was established by this, this place. And, and then John 14, show us the way. Their best imagination. They were sure of it. Unlike, almost like Daniel LaRusso. Sure of their motivation. Jesus, show us the motions because we need a savior that's going to remove the obstacles. Rome and the oppressors and all the guys who are in cahoots with them, and you're going to fix all of my challenges around me. And Jesus confronts the motivation. And later, the faith that is birthed in Thomas, by the way, you, you know, he ends up in India, speared to death for his faith. But here's what's happened to him. He doesn't rise up in his strength, because what he encounters 
in his encounter with Jesus was not just the physical resurrection from the dead, but, but a whole different motivation, a way of living in love, from love, and because of love. And, and suddenly, Thomas begins to have a shift that occurs in all of the disciples who wind up, by the way, every last one of them is martyrs. That, that, that faith to believe that it's love that will drive out hate. I don't need sacred violence. Imagine that. Imagine that. Those of us who've grown up with a steady diet of hearing this stuff. Oh, you got to take a stand. I wonder what we mean by that when I hear that. I think what I hear from folks when I hear that many times is this sense of their own resistance. And Jesus said, love your enemies. You know, it was uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's leadership in the civil rights movement that actually began to get a hold of this, that, that nonviolence is actually the way of Jesus. That's the brilliance that was inside of that movement because it was the way of Jesus. See, this kingdom is led in a different way, the way of Christ in, from, and because of love. And, and, and so the disciples, each one, are beginning to get this suddenly capturing their hearts and their minds to the point that you've got James and John who wanted to call fire down from heaven, burn down a village because they were followers of Jesus in their zeal. And John says at the end of his life, we know we've been born from God if we love one another. They had finally captured what Jesus meant when he said, all men will know you're my disciples if you love one another, the way of the cross. Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I want to just quickly touch on that out of Matthew 18 because unfortunately I believe Matthew 18 has many times been taken as in piecemeal as a proof text about how you deal with sin in the church as a proof text about how we deal with children's ministry as a proof text about how we reach the lost Jesus that entire dissertation is a reply to that one question who's the greatest After all, well, actually, what's dripping in their question is Maccabean thinking. Dare I say this? Western thinking? That we remove enemies by dominance? And it slips into our thinking that this is what God does? removes enemies by sacred violence, and it becomes a believable storyline. The power to overthrow the present oppression has to be met with an equal power or more dominant strength, and then suddenly violence begins to sound okay. It was never the way. Beloved, I want to say this really, really clearly. It was, is, and never will be the way of the cross and the way of Christ. Anyone or anything that tells us anything less is not representing the true Lord Jesus Christ. End of sentence. Jesus, who's going to be the greatest? Well, um, let me tell you some stories. 
It's not about, it's not going to be about who appears to be the most grand or impressive. And, and so in Matthew 18, think about this. Who's the greatest Jesus? Here's who he speaks to. And I'm just going to hit the first few uh, verses. But he speaks to, these all rhyme because I'm a pastor, okay? The liminal, the lost, and the last. And, and see, Jesus is answering this question about the kingdom by pointing directly to their imagination. Their imagination is still captured by these ideas of sacred force. So Jesus says, here's where the kingdom is. What, is, what does he do? The very first thing, he picks up a child and he puts it in front of them. Now, that, a lot of times I've heard in, in other church settings, see, Jesus really values children's ministry. He does. Okay. But that's the wrong verse. Because the little ones in Jewish thinking, they were thought to be liminal, meaning they weren't quite fully human. They didn't count. They literally didn't count them. And they didn't count as far as who really mattered, who had an opinion. So Jesus says, let me, let me talk to your imagination about needing to count. See this one here that you don't think counts? Become like that. He's, con he's speaking to people who are convinced they've got to get impressive and have sacred force. Then he says, unless you become like them, the liminal ones that you don't see as fully formed humans, you're not even going to get to the kingdom. What? what kind of kingdom is this, Jesus? Paint the fence. The lost, uh, when Jesus talks about going and, and finding that lost sheep, that isn't just a person who lost their, their, their phone directions or doesn't know how to read a map or have, you know, how to read good directions. They got lost. He's speaking about somebody who's considered, in the original language, that word for lost means gone. It's used in Revelation 18, 14 of Babylon. Babylon's, they're, they're, they're gone. It's, it's gone. Something or somebody who's beyond reach, beyond the ability of being reached. And Jesus said, it's the will of your Father that not one of those is lost. So Jesus, again, is speaking to people who are saying, who's the greatest, the most impressive? Wait a minute. The, 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 little, the one that I'm not counting? Yeah. The one that you've dismissed and decided is beyond reach? Yep, that, them too. And by the way, that's the will of the Father. It's about trusting the power of love and forgiveness as the most powerful over any system that is in your mind. Sand the deck. The last. He speaks of those that they've lost an imagination for living connected with your brother who sinned against you. You know what happens in those situations? Oh, it, this is, let me explain what happened to folks in that day. Is they would just, they would just get to a point where they just didn't, they, they, they lived as if they didn't exist. We don't do that at all in today's world. When there's hurt and offense among one another. I'm being completely sarcastic, right? 
Jesus is saying, you know, if, the, if your brother has sinned against you, ought. And he's speaking as an answer to this issue of being great. Here's my answer to you being great. Become like the person who doesn't count and deal with offense among one another. Self-giving, love, self-emptying, forgiveness, the liminal, the lost, the last. He's saying to his friends, where you based your relationships on the basis of forgiveness, shall I say, unforgiveness or failure or fears, this is what I'm saying about the kingdom. The greatest in this kingdom is not about the systems of the world where we value ourselves in one another, but that we value ourselves in one another in love. Jesus, the real Messiah of this kingdom, reveals that the, the hope of the gospel, the reality of that gospel that brings redemption, restoration, hope, is by means of self-giving, self-emptying, love and forgiveness. The way of Christ is the way of the cross, heaven on earth. That's the kingdom. So I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Bless those who, who wrongfully accuse them. You, bless them. Do not curse. Forgive as you have been forgiven. Jesus, I thought we were going to pull out our swords and become great. Owe nobody anything except to love one another. Love and value others. He didn't just say the people that sit in church with me each week. Others. The same way you love and value yourself. Love makes it impossible. It makes it impossible to harm another. So love fulfills all the law requires. Beloved, the way of Christ. The kingdom of heaven on earth where we're most fully alive is to live in, from, and because of the love of God revealed in Christ. It is the operating system of Scripture that reveals true religion. Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Even a child understands this. But wait a minute. Jesus said this in Matthew 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. So I want to submit that part of our repentance is to say, oh, God, help me. Guys, I can, I can tell you some stories about things that have been done to me in the name of love that weren't really loving. But I want to say, Lord, help me deal with things that I thought. You know, I, I'm, I'm talking about the places where by force or manipulation, we said, we're going to impose this upon you. See, that we lay aside our, can I say, Maccabean motivations that says, I need this in order to remove the enemies of my life. I need to exert strength and force. So what does love look like? God said, well, I'm going to come and show you. I'm going to put on a human body, 
and I'll lay down my rights and my privileges and I'll embrace your violence and proclaim life. So again, I've said this already one time. I want to repeat it again. I grew up <clears throat> singing Onward Christian Soldiers. Not a bad song. Except that that became translated in some of my charismatic Pentecostal teachings where we talked about putting on the full armor of God and we take these visions of Ezekiel and the army of God rising up and, and, and it's so easy to begin to transliterate this militant ideation of the Christian life. that allows us to embrace a worldview beloved anything less than the way of Christ in self-giving love and forgiveness needs to be laid to the side the scriptures are abundantly clear Jesus is abundantly clear verse 13 of Romans 13, let us behave properly, means this, that I'm not using love by any other means other than to actually love people. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. No wonder Paul ends in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 4, by saying this, let all things be done in love. So how do I awaken to the love of Christ Guys, I, I, you guys have heard me telling some of this story in my own journey, but I, I believe that the witness of the historical church has always has, has been a call to what, they, what the church has described as sacramental, um, a sacramental response. Now, the, part of my journey, I was like, hokey pokey. I believe in, you know, I, I, I want to believe in a personal relationship with Christ. Here's what a sacramental response means. It means that... We recognize in our common confession, in our baptism, and, and in communion, we're proclaiming what's true. That's what a sacramental uh, uh, response looks like. So for me, daily, this has been a practice of, uh, of beginning to proclaim from my lips Scripture and the promises and the truth of Scripture that begins to allow my, my body to agree, oh, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, Lord, this is what I actually believe as, as anxiety wants to try to grab a hold of me. Distractions try to grab a hold of me. Jesus, you chose love and invite me to live from that same place. Yes, yes, that's right. That's why it's good to rehearse and remember, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who lament. Blessed are the meek and the gentle. He's actually serious about that. I love the way that verse 10 in Romans 13 is translated out of the passion. Love makes it impossible to harm another. So fulfills all that the law requires. Beloved, the primary practice of the Christian life is not our duties or our obligations. It is living, and, and the place that we're fully alive is living in, from, and because of the love of God revealed in Christ, self-emptying love and forgiveness. Oh, God, teach us. No wonder St. Francis 
says something like this, Lord, I beg of you, let the fiery, gentle power of your love take possession of my soul and snatch it away from everything under heaven that I may die for love, for love of your love as you saw fit to die for love of mine. Amen? Who's the greatest? It's the way of the cross. It's the way of Christ. I want to invite us to respond this morning by praying this prayer together here. And then we're going to come to communion. So would you guys stand with me if you're able? And those of you on the call, if you have something there ready to share in communion, we're going to share in communion together. First, let's pray this prayer together. Holy God, you call us to righteousness and light. Teach us the undivided law of love, that we may love your children even as you do. Love you with all our will and strength, and find our freedom in this blessed service, taught to us in word and deed by Jesus Christ our Lord. This is one of the